0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The curse
1: of the modern age is that we have access to what everybody else is doing all the time. And so we think, and people are only showing us the best version of themselves, right? And so we think, That we have to chase after some illusory cultural narrative, and that we should be satisfied by what other people are doing or or what satisfies other people, and those people are thinking the same thing. They're comparing themselves with other people too. You know, uh, we just need to let go of those myths and let go of those uh, ghost rules, those invisible narratives guiding our lives, and we just have to say, my only job as a human being is to be here be now, to be building, to be contributing, to be adding value wherever I can, uh, to be changing the world around me. Very few people are called to change the world, but everybody is called to change the world around them. And When we embrace that ethic, it completely changes how we think about life.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt
0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe,
4: your business is always at your fingertips. Todd, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Srini, it's great to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you are one of our rare uh, three-peat guests, which I think says a lot to me about your work and and how prolific you are, um, both as a writer and creator. But as you know, I never want to start by talking about the book. Uh, and I was trying to think of like, what have I not asked you in the past? And I realized this was one. Uh, what social group were you a part of in high school? And how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made uh, throughout your life and your career? And that's
1: a great question. No one has ever asked me that before. That is a phenomenal question. Um, and I'm going to give you maybe a surprising answer, which is that I wasn't really a part of any social group. Um, I was kind of this weird transcendent kid that kind of like, I was, um, kind of like a science geek. So I loved science when I was in, in high school. And so kind of hung out like in all the science clubs and stuff like that. But I also like played basketball and like, was like a, you know, kind of like a standout on the basketball team, but I wasn't really friends with kind of like the athletic jock kids. And I kind of wasn't really, didn't really completely fit in with like the you know sort of science group and I kind of didn't really fit in with like the preppy kids. I you know like I didn't really have a click. I kind of just kind of floated between all the groups and just kind of had loose ties within each of the groups. Um, and so I, I don't. That's a really great question, and I'd never really considered that before. But I wasn't really a part of any group fully. And you know, it's funny because um, you know I've been sort of doing some Enneagram stuff right which is kind of like a uh, something a lot of people are kind of looking at right now and I'm a nine and the nine is the peacemaker and the nine is the one who's able to kind of bridge between all the different you know types on the Enneagram and it's probably why I kind of floated from group to group Um, and frankly probably also why I'm able to like go into organizations and companies and different groups now and sort of meld into whatever environment I'm in and just kind of present stuff because I can just kind of adapt to whatever's going on in the
4: environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's funny because there's so many ways we you go with this, but the question that I, I really am mm-hmm. curious about it is basketball in particular because, um, you know, as somebody who more or less concluded that I had no athletic ability, which is ironic considering my main two hobbies are surfing and snowboarding. Uh Team sports was one of those things where I look at it now and I regret not having done it because I felt that it was such a valuable experience. Like every person I've ever talked to who played a team sport, even if it was just in high school, talks about it as a building block of who they became like James Clear talks about the fact that baseball played this instrumental role in enabling him to do what he does and understand, you know, the, the concept of improvement. So I wonder, you know, what basketball in particular taught you about um you know, improvement, motivation, and all, all the things that, you know, were, sort of serve you later in life. Like, how did it impact um, how your life turned out later? Yeah,
1: I think there are a couple of things. I think one thing for sure is just that we, you you learn to function as part of a team, for sure. You learn to be in submission to authority. You learn how to take coaching, um, which is important. I think, you know, that's really maybe one of the most valuable aspects of playing a team sport, especially at a younger age, is you learn how to be coachable and how to let other people speak into your life in a way that, you know, maybe you wouldn't want to. Um, You have to listen to things you don't want to hear sometimes. Um, But I would say that probably the thing that sports did the most for me is it taught me how to do hard things. It forced me at an early age to do things I didn't want to do in order to improve. So, you know, I would be out in the driveway shooting basketball uh non-stop like from eighth grade on you know during the summer um i would you know my friends would be at the pool other people would be doing other things i'd be out shooting free throws trying to make like 20 free throws in a row like without without hitting the rim you know and and yeah. And then when I got to a point where I could do that, it would be like I have to make 20 free throws in a row without hitting the rim and the ball has to like bounce back to me. I can't have to go chase the ball. If I have to go chase the ball, I have to start over again, you know? And I would just constantly ramp up these little challenges for myself. And, um, you know, it just taught me about how to do hard things, how to improve, what development of skills looks like. And I'm really grateful for that experience. I mean, obviously, um, you know, obviously I didn't go on... You know, I wish the story ended, and then I went on to play in the NBA for fifteen years. You know? <laughs> I didn't, but but you know, but I did become you know accomplished at what I was doing, and it definitely taught me the importance of discipline and skill development if you want to succeed at anything.
4: Yeah, well, it, it's funny to be talking about a book on motivation with that, and you know, sort of as the backdrop. Um, you know, why do you think some people have that so early in their life uh, versus people who don't? Because yeah, you know, i mean there were certain areas of my life where particularly you know, music where i showed a natural aptitude for it and the band director was like you're gonna be in all state one day and nobody ever had to force me to practice in fact my parents had to force me to stop because i was driving them crazy um tubas are not very pleasant to listen to
1: <laughs> really i hadn't noticed that you know it's uh what's the uh What's the old joke? What's the definition of perfect pitch? It's when you toss a tuba over your left shoulder and it lands on a banjo, right, or something. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, I think, and this gets kind of the heart of the book and the research that my partners and I have been doing um, for a number of years. I I think what happens in those moments when you can't stop practicing something or you can't stop doing something, Is that there's a confluence of your natural motivation with a task of some sort that unlocks that motivation for you or that allows you to apply that motivation. So I'll give you an example. And I know we're going to get into this more later. But one of my uh, one of the themes in my motivation code, one of my top motivational themes is something called meet, meet the challenge. So you, you, you even heard me use that language earlier when you asked me about basketball, you know, okay, I have to make 10 free throws in a row. Okay. Now I have to make 20 free throws in a row. Okay. Now I have to make 20 in a row without hitting the rim. Okay. Now I have to make 20 in a row without hitting the rim and the ball has to roll back to me. I can't have to go chase. I can't move my feet right the entire time. What I was doing in those instances was establishing a series of challenges for myself to keep me engaged, to keep me motivated. Well, that's the definition of somebody who's driven to meet the challenge is you want imminent, you know, discreet tackleable challenges in, you know, in your immediate sphere. And that's what you're drawn to. And so for me, it wasn't the act of shooting basketball. I mean, it's not the task itself. It wasn't like, man, I just love putting my arm up in the air and flinging the ball toward a rim. And, you know, it wasn't the act itself. It was the challenge that that symbolized for me that, uh, was really the motivational factor. And I would submit to you that probably if, if we really delved into what it was about tuba that, that Mm -hmm. you enjoyed or what it was, that was attractive to you. We probably could figure out for you as well. Um, and if you took the M code, assessment, we definitely could figure it out, but we could probably figure out what it was that was so sticky about that activity. So we, we think, and this is often the case with motivation specifically, we think that if we only found the perfect set of tasks, or the perfect job, that somehow we're going to be motivated forever. Um, But the reality (laughs) is, I mean, yeah, we're laughing, right? Because we know, listen, I write books for a living. I don't like to write. It's not something I enjoy. I don't know about you, but I don't like writing. But I love the outcome of having written. In order to keep me engaged with my writing, I have to establish challenges, because that's one of my top motivations. So I'll say, for example, I'm going to write 500 words before 930 this morning. Like that's what I do when I'm writing a book and that keeps me engaged. It keeps me focused, keeps me motivated to do something I wouldn't otherwise be motivated to do. If you just tell me write 60,000 words before next January, I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'll start like in December. Cause that's when it would yeah. start feeling challenging for me. Right. Is, is right around December. I'd be like, okay, now it feels like a challenge. You have to write 60,000 words in a month. So I have to keep myself on pace by setting those little challenges in my life. And so uh, it's not about the task. It's about what you bring to the task and what the task pulls out of you. That's how we stay motivated and engaged.
4: Well, Okay, so it's funny because it's such a contrast to my sort of daily routine of of a thousand words, regardless of a book deal or not. Part of Mm -hmm. it is that I think to Mm me, I'm I'm afraid I'll lose the momentum that I've built over years. So Mm -hmm. I never want to stop. Granted, this morning's writing session was a disaster. And that happens, you know, day to day. But... Um i do I, I am curious, like just for for my own personal morbid curiosity like if you were to analyze this whole tuba playing situation if we were to dive into it now, you know i unfortunately, I didn't get to take the assessment, but um now I kind of want to um i mean what how would you dissect what was driving that
1: well i'm I'm curious to, I, the first thing I would do is I would ask you you talked to me about playing the tuba, what was it about playing the tuba specifically that um created a sense of satisfaction in you? Talk to me about those experiences playing the tubal. What was it about those moments that felt engaging to you in some capacity?
4: Well, there were a couple of factors that really played a role. One is, you know, I mean, I grew up in Texas where if you play football and you're a Scrawny Indian kid, it's pretty virtually guaranteed you're going to have very little success, you know. So um, I think it was kind of, uh, you know, he didn't say it in these exact words, but, you know, the band director more or less said you can either be an extraordinary musician or be an average athlete. And I think the idea of, you know, being that good at something uh, was really, really appealing to me uh, because, you know, he told me the day I picked up the instrument, you're going to make Allstate Band. And when that happened, it was one of those things that made me in my mind, and I didn't even know what Allstate Band was. I was in seventh grade, but the idea that I could be that good uh, I think honestly was one of the biggest things that drove me. I mean, the weird thing is, I came to the realization, I think, by the time I was uh, a senior in high school, that it wasn't actually music that I loved. I actually loved the attention from being in the spotlight. So it was a weird combo of things. and That's why I never pursued it as a, as a major in college or in my career. Never mind the fact that you have to wait for somebody to die for a job to open up.
1: Right, right. So I'm hearing a couple things from you. And again, I I don't want to spoil the results because I do want you to take the assessment and I want us to have an offline conversation about this because I'm I'm really fascinated now. But um, what I hear you describing um, is uh, a a motivational theme that we call evoke recognition. Okay? Evoke recognition means um, that you primarily feel engaged when other people notice contribution you're making or when other people notice that you're really, really good at something. Um, (laughs) You don't do it for the love of it. You don't do it because it's just something that's in your blood or something you just really, you know, enjoy. Although you may enjoy it for for sure as a process, you may enjoy it. But the primary outcome that you're driven to achieve is that you want other people to recognize you in some way. Um, I am certain that you enjoy writing Um, I would submit to you that perhaps maybe, maybe, maybe not, um, when your book was named a wall street journal bestseller, that probably was a pretty significant moment for you.
4: Yeah, of course. (laughs)
1: Um, and I mean, as it would be for anybody, but I would say, you know, there are people who write books and it's like, oh, great. Okay, good. Yeah, that's fine. And they move on. Right. But that moment of recognition probably resonated deeply for you because it was an external validation from an external Uh, uh, external body of some sort that called out in you something that they wanted to to sort of point out that you had done well or that you know you had excelled at in some capacity um so I would submit that that it would be very likely. And, and again, I would want you to take the assessment. And and the thing about the assessment is we start with your story. So we talk about stories of achievement. And then we ask you a bunch of questions about those achievements in order to get to what it is that's deeply motive, motivating and inspiring and engaging for you and what's satisfying. Um. So this is sort of, I'm really like doing like the cheap off the cuff kind of right. <laughs> listening to your languishing. But there's a second thing I heard in that, which is um you know the idea of standing out, the idea of having something that you're kind of known for um in mm-hmm. some capacity um and there's a there's another theme that that's called be unique and yeah. people who are motivated to be unique are people who want to show that they're different from other people they want to kind of own the space that they're in they want other people to recognize that there's something about them that Uh, separates them from the pack. And so often you find like artists or, um, you know, musicians or actors or people kind of in that space who are really driven by this need to prove that they are different from everybody else. And even like the, the, brand that you've developed unmistakable creative right the entire ethos of it the entire ethos is is be unique right it's like be yourself be unique stand apart from the crowd even like the visual identity that you've created you know is is very unique and stand apart ish from everything else and so i would submit that somewhere in your top three to five probably you're going to find those couple of motivations be unique and evoke
4: recognition Does that sound somewhat accurate? Yeah, so yeah, 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 it definitely does. I guess the thing that I think about in terms of, you know, external recognition is the fact, you know, I mean, I even wrote about the fact that, you know, this is a really slippery slope, Like, there's a real dark side to basically getting your fulfillment from sources of external validation because let's say that you don't get those things, then, you know, you can easily conclude that the whole effort wasn't worth any of your time. Like, you know, I I think that there is this sort of... um, platitude and personal development of, you know, change the world, but then, you know, does that mean your life has no value if you didn't mean to change the world, you didn't manage to change the world in a way that is acknowledged by the public?
1: It doesn't mean it didn't have value. It just means that maybe if you're not seeing, if you're not getting that recognition, it may not feel as engaging to you, right? So um you can still have tremendous impact um but the work you're doing may not feel as engaging to you if you're not being recognized for it so say that you're like maybe the number 2 in command and you're doing all the work behind the scenes and yeah. um you know you're you're really the one that's kind of pulling the strings and making everything happen and somebody else is stepping into the spotlight and getting all the credit for it that's not going to be very engaging to you whereas by the way yeah. by the way There are other people who are motivated by things like collaborate or motivated by things like uh, serve is another one of the motivational themes. People who are primarily driven in those ways might be completely engaged and thoroughly thrilled that somebody else is stepping into the spotlight. They just want to do the work. You know, The, the funny thing is that we. Tend to think everybody's generally motivated like we are. And the reality is there are 17,550 possible motivation codes, possible combinations of top three motivations that we could have. So the odds of you and me or anybody else around us or even anybody listening right now being motivated the exact same way are pretty slim. Um, So once we begin to understand these motivations and how they connect and modify one another, it changes the way we approach our life and our work and our relationships, especially. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
0: switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with tap to pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
4: So, you know, I think the, the, the question I have around this also um, is Where does this uh, overlap with Dan Pink's work in Drive and where does it actually challenge that work? Because I think when my roommate saw the book title, he was like, another book on motivation? (laughs) Hasn't that already been done? And so that was my first thought, too, is like, okay, what have you – and clearly you guys did this very differently and you have a very different model for it.
1: Right. Yeah, so um, I would say it's complementary. Um, you know, really what Dan Pink had done is he looked at all of the latest research on motivation, um, and specifically, you know, parsed motivation into two the two types we typically hear about, extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And then he sort of focused in on what's called self-determination theory, which is primarily an articulation of intrinsic motivation. And specifically, it's the re- research of uh DC and Ryan on the importance of autonomy relatedness and connectedness, or I think he called it autonomy, mastery, and purpose, I think is, is how he, um, how he defined it. Um, and so those things are very important, obviously, and it's a great articulation of intrinsic motivation and how we experience it. But what this research does, like you could call maybe, I think Dan Pink called it, that was called like motivation 3.0 or something is how he referred to it. Well, we could call what we're doing motivation 4.0 because um, what what the research also shows um, is that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation don't exist in isolation from one another, that the way that you are intrinsically motivated to respond to an extrinsic stimulus is unique depending on your intrinsic motivators. And so what we have done is figured out over the course of 50 years, this research began in the late 1960s was conducted over many decades, interviews with people from all walks of life, over a million achievement stories, uh, over 100,000 people have been through the assessment that's been developed. What we figured out is there are 27 unique themes of motivation. And those themes represent the ways in which we uniquely respond to extrinsic motivators. So you and I might, for example, in in our situations, um, my number one motivation is make an impact. Okay. That's my number one overall motivation on my motivation code. Um, let's say I'm just making this up because of our conversation, but let's say that your number one motivation is evoke recognition. Okay. And let's mm-hmm. say that we both get a pay raise from our boss, um, which is, you know, people would typically say, well, if you want to motivate somebody you just give them more money, right? Well, okay. Um, so let's say we both get get the pay raise. Well, the reason that pay raise is going to be satisfying. Is going to be very different for each of us. So for you, it's going to be somebody recognized me. Somebody noticed that I was doing good work. I was called out by my boss in front of my peers. I was given a pay raise. And that's going to feel very engaging and satisfying to you because of that evoke recognition motivation. For me, make an impact the pay raise is fine. But for me, it's a signifier of the impact that I'm having on the organization. So I'm going to look at the impact. I mean, whether or not I'm called out, whether or not it's public, whether anybody knows, I don't even care about my boss's recognition of my work. I just care that my boss is recognizing that I'm making an impact in the organization that's unique to me. And that that impact specifically is what drives me. So yeah, we're both going to be very grateful for the raise and yeah we're both going to be satisfied because of it but we're satisfied for different reasons does that does that make sense mm-hmm. that clarification
4: yeah it uh, well it does it, it's it's you know funny because now i'm kind of wondering you know through the lens of, of this framework if i could go back and figure out why i was fired from pretty much every job i had
1: yes well and the answer is probably yes um, that's one of the other things that happens when we begin to understand motivation code is we understand areas of conflict in our life. Like I'll give you an example. You know, my wife and I are motivated very differently, just the way that we're naturally wired. So, um, you know, as, uh, I've, so I've already mentioned making impacts. My number one, meet the challenges. My number two, my number three is influence behavior. Okay. So, um, I will pretty frequently be in a conversation with her and she'll say, you have just said the same thing like five times in a row. Why do you keep repeating yourself?" Well. I'm waiting for her to nod. I'm waiting for her to acknowledge. I'm changing her mind in some way. I'm waiting for her to give me some indication that what I'm saying is getting through, and she's not giving it to me. And so I keep repeating myself, repeating myself, repeating myself, right? And she thinks I'm just being redundant or I'm not, you know, paying attention to what I'm saying, but the reality is that's my influence behavior motivation playing out. So we've we've figured that out. Similarly, my wife is motivated to make it work, meaning she wants everything to be optimized. She wants to make everything the way it needs to be. She wants everything to be, um, you know, sort of uh, systemized and working together and, you know, optimized to its maximum efficiency. Well, that's not the way as a creative pro, like I have 50,000 ideas that I throw out there and like I might execute two yeah. of them, you know? Um, but in her mind, it's like the moment I throw out an idea, you know, well, what are you doing about that? How are you optimizing that? What are your next steps? You you know, (laughs) and so again, we've had to sort of create this thing in our relationship where we've said like, okay, uh, right, this is just an idea. I'm probably not going to do this, but what do you think about this idea, right? And that changes that dynamic. On Teams, for example, um, there might be someone who is driven to explore, meaning they're going to ask a lot of questions. They're going to be saying, why are we doing this? Why are we going this direction? What if we try this? Somebody else might be driven to bring to completion, which means they're primarily driven with checking things off and moving on to the next project, right? Checking, checking boxes yeah. and moving on. Well, those two people are gonna have conflict all the time because the explore person is gonna slow everything down and say, why are we doing this? And what if we tried this? And let's let's explore this direction. And the bring to completion person is gonna say, Are you nuts? We got to get this done so we can move on to the next project. So again, once we begin to understand these things, these these areas of motivation, it completely unlocks our relational dynamics. It unlocks the way that we see others and our position within the
4: organization as well well let's uh, let's get into um you know these various uh families of motivation that you basically outlined in the book, like I said when I, I looked at it, I was like, oh my God, no we're gonna cover all this in one hour, but I mean i can you give us an overview of each of the families and then kind of what are the characteristics and also sort of potentially what are the downsides to? You?
1: yeah, so um you know the, the the real rubber meets the road on the theme level. I mentioned there are twenty seven motivational themes. Um, and each of these themes are very unique in terms of their their um gift attributes, their positive attributes, also their shadow side attributes. Um, but some of the themes hold together into what we call families. And just like, you know, a, a biological family shares a, a bit of DNA, even though you're probably very different from your biological siblings in in so many ways, um, in terms of your personality and how you live your life, you still have some similarities because you are um Uh, in the same family, share some DNA. And so that's kind of how these themes hold together in families as well. So the first family is what we call the visionary family. And these themes are primarily about making an impact, uh, experiencing what's ideal, what's possible, crafting visions, and then bringing that vision to concrete expression, that kind of thing. So these are uh, the themes in this family are make an impact, achieve potential, and experience the ideal. And these are primarily themes that are about the future, about seeing something and then bringing it into being. I mean, that's primarily how these people are driven. Um, The second family is what we call the achiever family. And the achiever family is driven to move forward, to bring things to completion, to complete challenging objectives. So the themes in this family are meet the challenge, bring to completion, overcome, and advance. Uh, The third family is what we call the key contributor family. And these are people who want to be at the center of the action. They want to make an outstanding contribution. They want to clarify the differences between themselves and other people. They're very competitive. Typically, they want to control outcomes, things like that. So the families or the themes in this family are be central, bring control, excel, evoke recognition, gain ownership, and be unique. The fourth family is what we call the team player family. Um, these are people, as you can imagine, who like to work with others. They like to be around others. They like to collaborate. Um, so the themes in this family are collaborate, influence behavior, serve, and make the grade. And then we've got the learner family. And the learner family are people who like to use their minds to absorb new you know, insights. They like to learn new things, gain mastery, demonstrate knowledge they like to teach, right? So the themes in this family are demonstrate new learning, explore, master and comprehend and express. And then the final family is what we call the optimizer family. And these are people who are motivated to set up an operation on firm foundations, to ensure that it's operating well, it's it's, you know, the efficiency is maximized, those kinds of things. And the themes in this family are develop, improve, make it work, establish, organize and make it right. So those are the Six families, very quick overview. And again, all of the rubber meets the road stuff is at the theme level and specifically how those themes work together. So your top three to five themes are what we call your motivation code. And the themes modify one another. So somebody who has a number one theme of, let's say, um, bring to completion, who has a number two theme of collaborate is gonna be very different than somebody who has bring to completion as number one and say like, achieve or evoke recognition as their number two, right? So the person who has collaborated as a number two is gonna be all about getting things done together with other people, right? That's gonna be primary. The the person who has evoke recognition is gonna be about getting things done in order to achieve recognition from people around them. That's what's gonna be satisfying to them or that's how they're gonna primarily be driven. So the themes modify one another and how they play out depends on what that combination of top three to five themes actually is.
4: Yeah, so that, that's the thing I, I noticed was when I was looking for this. Was wait a minute, I see, you know, parts of myself in all of these. Yes,
1: yeah, and you will, and and you know, there, you are to some degree, you are going to see parts of yourself in all of these. Um, you know, to some degree, even somebody who is primarily driven to meet the challenge, right, and has a Bottom theme of say make it right. Well, that doesn't mean that they don't care if things are right. It doesn't mean mean that they don't care about justice. It doesn't mean that they don't you know worry about ensuring that things are functioning properly. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that that's not primarily what's driving them uh, when they're uh, when they're most engaged. And so this isn't about oh I am completely driven by this thing and not at all driven by that. It's about those moments when you are alive awake even in flow state what is it that is in those moments what is it that's descriptive of those moments and how can you fabricate more of those moments by bringing that motivation to what you do rather than waiting for the task to bring that motivation out in you
4: yeah. well i guess then the, the that the, you know raises the the big question is okay what are the like what have you seen as the results when people figure this out like how do their lives change um you know What kinds of changes do you see in people in terms of both performance, in terms of results, in terms of, you know, everything else?
1: Yeah. So my partners have been doing this for decades, actually, which is uh, pretty amazing to be to be working with a group of people who have been doing this research for a very, very long time. We have uh, four PhDs on our team who continue to do research into not only um, these, these motivations, but also how they play out, uh, what people report, what they experience when they're operating within these motivations, and specifically what it means for engagement. Um, what I have, over the last four years that I've been involved in this work, what I have personally seen and noticed is that it illuminates for people uh, patterns in their life that have become ruts for them. Or you know, like you mentioned earlier, potentially self-destructive patterns. Like, oh, I can probably see why I got fired from jobs, right? Or I, oh, I can probably yeah. see why I've had conflict in my lives. In my life, um, I mentioned that you know, in my relationships, both collaborative relationships and in my personal relationships it's introduced new language and increased the amount of empathy that we have for one another so that we can talk about things in a more meaningful way. And we don't make assumptions about where the other person's coming from. We Again, we tend to assume everybody's generally motivated pretty much the same way that we are. And once we yeah. see, oh, this isn't, you know, Todd's not meaning to be a jerk right now. He's just trying to make an impact. So when we invited him to this meeting, And he was just supposed to come in and sit in the meeting, but instead within five minutes, he has the whiteboard marker and he's drawing on the whiteboard and telling us all what to do. It's not that he's a jerk. It's just that he's driven to make an impact. right? And we have to have that conversation and say, Todd, I know you want to make an impact right now, but this isn't really the place we want you to make an impact right now. Right now, we just really want you to just kind of audit this meeting and listen and see what you think. you know that's kind of how it plays out i think is most is it it reveals for people the the negative patterns but also offers opportunity for them to see where they need to be aligning themselves in order to experience deeper engagement so if i'm going to be in a, a job that is deeply satisfying for me i'm going to need to be able to see the impact of my work i just know i am and if i'm just doing repetitive work where i can't see the outcome and i'm just doing one little piece of the Puzzle and passing it on to somebody else, and I never really see the the impact of my work. I'm probably not going to be as engaged as if I'm seeing something through from beginning to end, putting it out in the world, and seeing my unique impact from the the work that I did. Um, and it's just it it changes the way you think about your work and how you approach your work each and every day.
4: Yeah. So, and you know, we we started out before we hit record here, um, and I was telling you about a piece that I just published called "The Skeptics Guide to a, a Good Life," and so one thing you know, I have really started to think about in terms of personal development is the role of context and how we just tend to overlook it when we hear things from people like you, because so often you know we're motivated to set these very sort of arbitrary goals um, that we think we choose, but they're actually largely influenced from the world around us. You know, you see some person who has had some level of success in the public eye well maybe you know you see their best-selling book roll through your newsfeed on instagram and you're like okay that's it that's the goal that is the thing i am motivated to do so why do we do that like why is it that we mistake um other people's motivations for our own i guess is really where i'm going with that
1: well i think there are any number of cultural narratives about what is and what isn't a good life what you should and what you shouldn't want um Couple years ago, I had a great conversation with a guy named Richard Heitner, who's the global COO of Saatchi and Saatchi, the the advertising agency. And I I say COO on purpose because um, he said, "I spent my entire life thinking I needed to be the CEO, and if I didn't want to be the CEO, there's something wrong with me." He said, "The problem is I experienced that. I did it. I was a CEO of a publicly traded company, and it did not go well. Um, And I realized I'm a great number two, and I'm a terrible number one." Because I'm not, I'm just not gifted to be in the spotlight, but I'm remarkably gifted to be the, as he called it, the consigliere, right? To be the right hand person, to be the person driving alignment and uh, bringing the organization around a vision of a visionary leader. I think there are any number of narratives that tell us the way we should be motivated, um, the, the the kinds of things we should pursue, the kinds of jobs we should have, the kinds of attention we should get. What should fill our well? And part of the maturity, the part of the process of maturing as an, as a human adult, is getting to a place where you recognize that most of us generally are average. I mean, by default, we mm-hmm. are right. Most of us are average, yeah. and myself included. I throw myself in there because I do the same thing you do. You know, I mean, pe- some people would look at like what you do or what I do, and they would say, "Oh, well, that guy's had five books published and." you know, his podcast has 10 million downloads and, uh, you know, he's speaking in front of, you know, he's, last year he spoke in front of 400,000 people at one time at an event and, you know, like people look at those things and they think like, wow, that must just be, but, you know, I look at other people that I respect and I'm like, well, I'm not doing <laughs> what they're doing, right? Like I look at Seth Godin yeah. or I look at, you know, I mean, any number of people, I just, you know, call, call out, you know, the people that we, talk about people that are on our same in our same publishing house right the Seth Godins yeah. and the Simon Sinek's of the world and those people and you know we're comparing ourselves to those people you know and so um i i think that that is just a foolish game um it's something that you know especially people in their early 20s i see uh, you know i hear from them pretty frequently and they'll say like i feel like i'm falling behind i feel like everybody else is getting ahead of me and i'm like falling behind what Getting ahead of who, what What are you talking about? Like you have to run your race and recognize that your job is to build a good life. Your job is to do good in the world, to create value, to build a body of work that you're proud of. And it doesn't matter if anybody else is proud of that body of work. You need to be proud of that body of work. You, know, you need to construct your life in a way that you can point to it with pride and say, yes, that represents me. And if that's a really small Seemingly small body of work in a really small geographical area where you just build into people around you and you change the world around you. Fantastic! That's great. And frankly, that's where you know ninety nine point nine percent of people. That's what we're called to do is just to have that yeah. impact in our immediate sphere of influence. Um, we the the curse of the modern age is that we have access to what everybody else is doing all the time, and so we think and, and people are only showing us the best version of themselves, right? And so we think that we have to chase after some illusory cultural narrative and that we should be satisfied by what other people are doing or, or what satisfies other people. And those people are thinking the same thing. They're comparing themselves with other people too. You know, uh, we just need to let go of those myths and let go of those, uh, ghost rules, those invisible narratives guiding our lives. And we just have to say, my only job as a human being is to be here be now to be building, to be contributing, to be adding value wherever I can, uh, to be changing the world around me. Very few people are called to change the world, but everybody is called to change the world around them. And when we embrace that ethic, it completely changes how we think about life and work.
4: I love that. I'm gonna to have to steal that quote because you know, I think I was talking to to my roommate the other day, and you know, I noticed something really <laughs> odd about you know sort of personal development circles and the circles that. You and I run in. You know, you look at somebody who lives on what's quote unquote an ordinary life, and it's almost like personal development guilt[s] them about that. It's almost like you look down upon that, and like you know, who's to say there isn't nobility in something as simple as living in a small town and raising a family, and you know, like you said, changing the world around them, but not changing the world in a way that's acknowledged publicly. And it's just such an odd thing to me to even think about that because I'm basically calling to question my own work at the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, so, and so I think we have to give one another grace too, in that, you know, um, you know, we, we are, um, as a culture right now, I feel like if you were to, if you were to say, what is the number one most valued cultural attribute? I think we probably, probably would say fame, you know, um, if you ask kids what they want to be today, they say, I want to be a celebrity. Well, you know, that word celebrity comes from the word celebrate, which means you've done something worth celebrating, right? Like a celebrity used to be someone who had done something worth celebrating. So we celebrate them and they become famous. But now you can be a celebrity just because you take photos and post them on Instagram. You know, like how how does that work? You know, um, And so I I don't mean to sound like a crotchety old man. I mean, I'm almost 50 years old and I know I I probably sound that way. And um, listen, the more the merrier, whoever wants to do that, that's fine. But I do feel like we've lost something culturally where we have turned being famous into a pursuit rather than a byproduct. I think if we focus on creating a body of work that we can be proud of, And if we create a good enough body of work, people may start recognizing that. And if we influence enough other people's lives, then people are going to start celebrating that. And you know what? We may become a celebrity as a result of that, but it should be a byproduct of our work, not the pursuit itself. I think pursuing fame, pursuing celebrity is a fool's errand. It's chasing vapor it is because you're never, if that's really what you're trying to do, you're going to spend your entire life trying to prop up the fact that you should be famous instead of saying, I'm going to do work worth celebrating. And then if I become a celebrity because people are celebrating the work I do, awesome. That's great. But I'm not chasing celebrity for its own sake because that is such a freaking hollow thing. It just is. you know. Um, And you and I both know that. And we both have met people who have had i mean I, I so i in my early 20s i sang music for a living um yeah. and I, I may have if i talked about this on the show before if so i'll shut up i will you, you have okay. yeah okay right. yeah, you have
4: i mean well and it's funny because you know like i've had these like minor moments of celebrity like i was on a netflix documentary that was seen by like half the world recently and you know it's kind of like yeah but i was also called a loser you know for half the world to see um it's just you know, like <clears throat> I think Tim Ferriss recently actually had a, an article that somebody else here mentioned on the show about uh the downsides of fame and uh even you know inventor Greg Hartle he said, Look, he's like, you know, for every you know goal you have, set an anti intention. He said, Because you know what, there are gonna be things that suck about accomplishing that goal. Yeah. He said, You want your own T V show, guess what? You can't go to a restaurant anymore. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, and people think that would be amazing. Um they do yeah. <laughs> but, but it's um and trust me, I've I've known people and and have had many conversations with people who are in that space and it's not amazing it's not amazing at all um you 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 really lose so much of your life when that happens and you don't just lose it now like you lose it forever um and so it just becomes really difficult to just be a human being in the world and at the end of the day that's just that is a modern phenomenon that most people throughout history other than kings have never really had to deal with and even kings like Literally, you know, 300 years ago, a king could walk into a town wearing normal clothes and just walk around and go to the market, whatever. Nobody would know that was the king. You, know, you had to announce yeah. the king when the king came into town. The king is here, right? And, oh, that's the king. And Like, nobody knew what the king looked like. Um, you know, George right. Washington, nobody Perfect. knew what George Washington looked like. Uh, but it's a uniquely modern phenomenon that now... Um, you know, we can forever lose our sense of privacy, and it's sad to me that so many people chase that without even calculating what the cost might be of that.
4: Well, it, that's the thing. Okay? I think that you you look at the life of a public figure, and you know, I realize like public figures are often put on pedestals, and I think it was in Oliver Berkman's book he said, you know, like a person who speaks about something like motivation and happiness is, you know, has to put on this act because the public expects them to be a certain person, and when they're not that person, right, you know. It, it basically shatters, you know, perceptions that people have in it. It can be, you know, detrimental to their careers, which is crazy. Yeah, it is. Well, that and that's what
1: um, you know, <laughs> my wife said. You will never write a parenting book, parenting book and you will never answer parenting advice questions because the moment you do, our kids are going to turn out <laughs> terrible. And, you know, because, I mean, think about it. Like, that's the, like the moment you start giving advice about something, you're going to be held to the standard of that advice. And if your kids don't live up to that standard, or if you don't live up to that standard, then, you know, people love to call out hypocrisy or at least what they perceive as hypocrisy because it makes them feel better than you, you know? And, um, it's just, I think we have to be very careful which flags we plant and how we talk about, I mean, you know why would anybody run for public office? Because the standards that were holding people who run the public office. Well, okay, never mind. That's probably a bad example these days. But, <laughs> but like, but like for real, unless you want, unless you want to open your life up to everybody questioning every decision you've ever made. And yeah, you know, what's the what's the number one sin of a public official? Changing your mind, changing your mind, mm-hmm. right? You're a flip flopper. You know, you're you're a hypocrite. Well. Don't you want public officials who are willing to change their mind when they confront new information? And it's like, oh, that's something I've never heard before. Yes, I'm changing my opinion on that. But we can't do that now, right? Because you're called a hypocrite or a flip flopper. I want public officials who learn. I want business leaders who learn, who change their mind, change their perspective, and are able to articulate why they did that. That's what intellectual honesty looks like, intellectual rigor looks like. But, uh, you know, the moment you become a public figure, you, put a target on your back, basically.
4: This is why I always say I don't have advice, just observations. Mm,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really wise thing. I think, um, you know, I always tell people, listen, all advice is local (laughs) and uh, your results may vary because the truth is human behavior is very complex. And so I will come in and offer advice to organizations or to leaders um, who are leading huge companies or huge initiatives And I always lead with, um, I'm going to give my advice based upon my experience, but, you know, again, your results may vary and all advice is local, meaning that nobody has ever lived your life. Nobody's ever experienced your unique set of circumstances, um, or had your experience. So, you know, what you do with this advice is going to be completely dependent on your situation. And I think that again, the best advice, um, even the best advice is going to be applicable in like maybe 80% of situations, right? Even the best advice, like 20% of people could still immediately discount that advice because it's not relevant to them. So yeah, I think we're, everybody's looking for the airtight solution and there are no airtight solutions. There are principles by which we live our life. Yeah. We just have to decide which principles we're going to choose.
4: Wow. Well, I think that makes a perfect place to wrap up our conversation. So I want to ask you my final question, which I've probably asked you at this point three or four times. So uh, I've always it's always interesting to see how people answer this question when they come back. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody do something unmistakable? Uh,
1: I believe that what makes us unmistakable is when we are fully and confidently able to stand on the platform that we have, whatever that looks like, again, and, and pour the unique contribution we have to make into the people around us unapologetically. And when we can do that, I think um, that's what's going to cause us to, to stand apart from the pack because so many people are trying to shape their contribution according to the expectations of others rather than saying, here's my perspective, let me, let me offer this as a gift to you rather than as you know some way to make myself bigger and, and better in the
4: process. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share um, your wisdom and your insights from the new book with us. Um, where can people find out more about you, the latest book, and uh, everything else that we've talked about?
1: Yeah. So for more about Motivation Code, just go to motivationcode.com and you can take the assessment and find out about the book and all that stuff right there. Um, and if you want to know more about me and my work, you can go to toddhenry.com. That's where all my other books are, as well as my podcast, The Accidental Creative, and and all
4: the other work that I do.